This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Guys, this is going to be a great episode with Gina Walcotti out of Payson, Arizona, and we're going to talk all about coos deer and their habits and behaviors and tactics for hunting them. But before we get to that, I want to thank you guys for listening to this podcast we just uh, reached the 1 million download mark, and um, this podcast has been uh, alive for about 10 months exactly uh, to the date that we hit a million downloads. I want to thank you guys for your support of this podcast. I'd also like to thank GoHunt.com Insider for their title sponsorship of this podcast and DeadeyeOutfitters.com. Uh, without you guys and without the sponsors, uh, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Uh, I'd like to also thank you for all the positive comments on iTunes and the feedback that I get through my email at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, I've got a couple shows that I'm going to be doing on questions that I get from listeners, and I'll try and answer those questions as best that I can. Um, you guys can follow along our adventures uh, on our blog at jscottoutdoors.com, on our Instagram at jscottoutdoors, my associate Dar Colburn at Dar Colburn, D-A-R-R Colburn, and Facebook, J. Scott Outdoors, and our YouTube channel, J. Scott Outdoors. So guys, thanks for all your support. Uh, it's going to be a great 2016. We're just about to finish up 2015 here. So if you're still hunting, finish strong and um, it's going to be a great 2016. We've got a lot of uh, great things uh, coming here on the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. So thanks for tuning in and let's get right to the episode. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a coos deer fanatic on the other end of the line. We've got Gino Walcotti from Strawberry, Arizona. And I've known Gino for quite a while, and I've bumped into him in the woods uh, from time to time. And uh, I respect what Gino does, and uh, Gino's a hardcore coos deer fanatic and um, is around these deer all the time. And I'm excited to have him on to talk about coos deer and their patterns and uh, both archery and rifle, and, and uh, he's guiding a client right now. Gino guides for A3 Trophy Hunts, and um, just excited to have him on the podcast today. Gino, how are you doing? Good, Jay. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited to um, talk to you about coos deer. Uh, specifically, you kind of work those units, uh, you know, 22s, 23s, 6As, uh, right there, you know, in central Arizona. Um, what's going on out there in the coos deer woods? I know you've got a client uh, you've been hunting here the last few days. Well, it's uh, the weather's been a challenge. Um, we've had uh, quite a bit more moisture than we're used to, which is which is a blessing and a curse. But, uh, you know, the deer are up and, and they're grouped up and they're, they're starting to really move well. So it's it's been fun. We've been seeing a lot of deer. 
So Gino, um, have you guys actually during this hunt uh, had, do you have snow on the ground or um, have you had actual sessions of glassing closed down due to, due to whiteouts or weather? Yeah, we've, uh, we've had a little of both, uh, a lot of low clouds uh, these last few days for sure. And, um, you know, some rain and, and certainly in, in this north country, all the, the northern faces are covered in snow and, um, mud and just, just a ball to be out in the woods and soaked all the time. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know about you, but I would rather it be snowing than raining. It seems like when it's, you know, that cold drizzle, your optics get wet and it just becomes very challenging when you're trying to use your eyes to find those deer. Um, can you weigh in on whether you'd rather it just be flat snowing or whether you'd rather it be raining? Actually, yeah, I'm kind of a sissy about that. I'm, I'm a fair weather Tuesday hunter. Um, I kind of feel like the, if I don't want to be in it, the deer don't want to be in it. Um, we see some deer when, if we're looking right into pockets when it's like that, but I'd rather stay dry if I can, and as soon as it breaks, I'd rather get back in it. Yeah, I want to ask you a question about that. Um, it seems as though if you, you know, if, if you have the fortune of having um, the ability to hunt that whole, and let's let's talk specifically the December coup season uh, in Arizona. It's it's pretty darn liberal. You know, I think it's close to three weeks long. Um, are there days when you just see that the weather's going to be? Um, you know, extremely crappy and the wind's going to be blowing and, and moisture in and out. Uh, will there be days when you just kind of sit it out and wait for the storm to clear? And a as another question on top of that, how do you see the next day after a storm? Let's say it, it blows out and it, and overnight and it's uh, clear and crisp the next morning. What is the difference as you see there? I think first and foremost, it has a lot to do with, with who has the tag. Um, uh, for example, if, if we're hunting with uh, someone who's not necessarily uh, going to hold up to the freezing temperatures and being wet and so on, we probably would sit out trapped weather. On the flip side, when you're hunting with a gentleman who's just earned 12 bonus points to, uh, to hunt one of these late tags, um, sitting at home and, and watching the weather versus being out in it and, and giving it the good old college try is, is uh, you know, not really an option. You, you've got to be out there. Um, for me, myself, if I have the tag, uh, which I never do, but uh, if I did, I would uh, certainly pick and choose my days. Yeah. And do you, do you see a noticeable difference on days when it's bluebird, cold and crisp as opposed to blowing wind? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, that was kind of my fair weather comment from before. These deer absolutely love to be out in the clear, cold weather. Um, and their biggest predator, the, the guys that are out there all the time when we're not in mountainlands, they love it when it's windy. So, of course, the two deer don't love it when it's windy. And speaking of uh, windy uh, Gino, I've found if if you do have those windy days, if you can get up on points and put the wind in your face and basically eliminate the windy side of the hill because it's blowing in your face and be looking into 
the lee side or the non-windy side, I've been amazed at how many deer actually you can find in those pockets. It's They almost become predictable. Um, weigh in on that a little bit. I think that's 100% true. Uh, yesterday, for example, the, wind, the weather was awful, and in the afternoon, the, the wind was whipping. Uh, you know, we were fortunate enough to be sitting on a pocket of deer um, with the, the wind just beating us to death and looking into that leeward side um, and, and, and saw lots of deer. Um, but they were just up and down. They, they don't move. They don't cover much ground. Um, they're constantly got their ears going and looking around because they're expecting, you know, the worst all the time. You know, for people that don't or haven't hunted coos deer, it's really hard to explain. But I, I witness those deer, like you're saying, their ears are up and they're all, basically when it's windy and, and the weather is, they can't hear um, and they have to be on alert and on attention at all times. And it, it, it really puts them in, you know, an agitated state, so to speak, which in turn, I think makes those deer, they just don't move. Um, and the difference in when you have, say, uh, in my opinion, you know, like five, six days of, of clear, uh, just bluebird, normal weather, they're going to get out sometimes a lot more uh, out in the open uh, and feed. And it seems like they can relax a little bit. And when they relax, it seems as though uh, they let their guard down from, from a glassing perspective. They tend to, to branch out a little bit more while they probably feel completely in control because at that point they can hear everything around them. Um, I, I would much rather have uh, clear days, more calm type weather um, than the storms that we've been having that you've been facing here the last couple of weeks during this season. Yeah, I think that's a, a real uh, a real solid statement. Um, as a lot of people know, I, I hunt with my Queensland healer with me all the time and I watch what he's doing he's sitting in the sun, then I, I've got a better chance of seeing deer in the sun. And if he's tucked in a hole out of the wind, that's kind of what they're going to be doing. Um, yeah. Just, you know, it, all animals are the same. Uh, the elk do the, the exact same thing. Um, sheep are notorious for it. Um, as you well know, uh, usually the, the, the those leeward sides out of the storm versus uh, you know the the sunny sides on the clear days um, when you know when it's cold. Uh, those are the places that that we look based on the weather. Gino, um, you know the, the, this this hunt that you're guiding right now, this December hunt, is oftentimes looked at as and quote unquote called the rut hunt, and it's been my experience that. Uh, even in the central Arizona units where you've got a little bit higher elevation, you know, around Payson, Camp Verde, uh, you know, some of the higher elevations in the 22s, 23s, 6As, as opposed to down south, uh, it's always been said that those deer rut earlier. And, and I do agree with that, but it's been my experience that normally uh, the, the coos deer really don't show a lot of signs of really running around and bucks actively chasing does until the last few days 
yes, definitely after Christmas, but say the last five days of the hunt, uh, is that what you're witnessing this year? I think it's pretty consistent every year. I, I don't really know that the deer rut earlier or later um, in these units, um, depending on, on the, the situation. But, um, you know, they're they're notorious for, for having the best action in January uh, during the archery hunts versus the rifle hunts. But we get a lot more movement in December and bucks staging up and, uh, you know, checking does and, and, and that that sort of thing, hanging out around the does and being a lot closer. Um, there's a lot of chasing action going on, you know, throughout the month of December. We even see them chasing sometimes in November. But it's I, I almost believe it's more a situation where you've got a doe here and a doe there that uh, is maybe coming into an early cycle or, or something like that. And, those are the ones that that's why we just keep moving because you're, you're hoping you catch that deer and, and that deer will hopefully show you lots of bucks. And that's, that's, I mean, this time of year, that's what you're praying for. That's interesting. Um, I want to expand a little bit on, you say you keep moving. Um, what do you mean by you keep moving? Uh, I mean, in October, November, you may sit on the same rock for days. I very rarely stay in the same spot more than a day in a row, you know, one day in a row. Um, I may come back later and check a spot, but I'm, I want to see deer. I keep looking this time of year. So, in other words, in October, November, you've got deer that you've patterned that are in a habitual situation where they do the same thing every day and if you know a buck is there you are going to sit and look into that buck's country until you find that buck whereas uh as december uh moves moves on through the month uh you're actually moving around more trying to find some of those does that may be coming into cycle where they may draw a buck uh out of the brush in, into visible where you can see them so you yourself are going to move a lot more than you would in October and November. I think that's a pretty fair statement. And after Christmas, uh, have you seen before in those 22, 23 units, I mean, have you seen it where it's, you know, Katie bar the door, every, every place when you're moving around, you know, whether morning you go somewhere, evening you go somewhere for a couple days in a row, you're bouncing around. Have you seen it where it just turns wide open and there's deer chasing, uh, bucks chasing does literally all over the hillsides? You know, I think year to year everything's a little different. Um, I can't say that uh, that in December I've I've had many years where where it was that Katie bar the door thing, but um, there's certainly more hot does the later end of the month we go, and and like I said before, I, I really think. That's what we're looking for. The, the does are the bait, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so you, the the longer it goes into the you know into into their rut cycles, the the more does that are going to be hot. And, um, you know, there's there's nothing more exciting than having a, a hot doe on a hillside with four or five bucks running around. Um, you know, and and I think that's what really drives us on these hunts is to, to get in the middle of that. Absolutely. Uh, 
Do you know what, in your mind, what makes good coos country? I mean, you hear people talking about coos country, and as you know, coos deer, uh, you know, they exist in many different parts of terrain of Arizona uh, and Mexico and New Mexico for that matter. But in your mind, what makes great coos country? That's a living in the country that, that, that I do in Central Arizona, that's a really tough question because I can run 30 minutes in, in any direction, 30 or 40 minutes in any direction and be um, into flat bottom deserts and be hunting coos deer if the weather's crap up in the high country um, and and do so. I, I I love finding coos deer in the saguaro cactuses and prickly pears. Um, Ocotillos and stuff like that. It's, it's always neat and fun to find them there. Plus, they're a heck of a lot easier to see uh, when they're in that desert country. Um, everybody loves to to hunt the the thicker brush country, but it's it can be a demeaning process um, to sit there for hours and hours and not see anything and, and know in your heart there's got to be deer there. Uh, so. The, the great part about this country along central Arizona, uh, whether you're in 6A, 21, 22, um, 23, you're along, you know, along that muggy on rim, there's, there's, you have the potential to find trees during the pine trees, and you have the potential to find them in, in the desert, uh, in the cactuses. So that, that variety of terrain, I think, is really it sets the bar. You can kill giant coos deer in any of those places, and uh, and I never hesitate to to run downhill from this high country because uh, it it gets monotonous sitting up here waiting for that one coos deer. Yeah, and expand a little bit on. Uh, I know from hunting, you know, twenty two and twenty three up in some of the higher elevations. Uh, for the listeners out there that haven't been in that country, you've got real thick manzanita and brush and pines. Um, and uh, why is that more of a challenge to for people, say, the newer hunters and people that are you know just getting into it? Why is that country harder to find deer than, say, the lower elevations of more of the desert mesquite and what have you? Well, you know, from a biology standpoint, I've never really understood why, but it always seems to me that the high country has lower deer densities. Um, but the further south you go, you seem to get higher numbers. I, I don't know if the, the desert environments just seem to cater to more deer. Uh, maybe it has something to do with it, that less predation, um, because there's less cover for the predators to hide in the desert. Um, I'm not really sure, but, but up here in, in the, the higher country, there, you have two things. One, you have the gray ghost, which is the hardest thing on earth to see on an open hillside, much less a hillside covered with gray and, and green uh, brush that is you know between three and ten foot tall. Uh, we were looking at a Tuesday but just yesterday in, in brush country that you can see that the head and horns of him when you picked his head up and the rest of the time you could never see that deer. Uh, and that's, uh, so if, if a deer never stands up out of its bed, you're never going to see it. Uh, so that that would be the, the biggest reason that's difficult to hunt this, this high country. And, and with lower deer densities to begin with, you, you're certainly looking for less deer. 
Yeah, and certainly with that, would you agree that at times, because it's challenging to hunt because of that exact uh, situation that you just described where the buck has to have his head up for you to even see the deer, um, it can also produce some big giant deer because uh, they're harder to hunt in that country and they can hide better and, and definitely the high country can yield some giant bucks. Uh, sometimes they can be impossible to kill too as well. I, you know, I think that uh, that you can find almost as many, probably the same amount of giants in, in, in low country. Um, you just have to look where everybody else isn't looking. It's, it's an age class thing. Uh, these deer that are going to get, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old, um, those are the deer that, that you're looking for if you want to kill a big deer. You're, you're not, uh, uh, you're not going to find that in a place that's got seven trucks every day of the hunt. So you, you've got to, you've got to find places where, where people aren't all the time. That doesn't necessarily mean you got to hike 40 miles from a truck, but it does mean that, you know, some, some pockets of deer get a little more age class than others. For sure. You know, Gino, one of the things that Dar and I have witnessed down in Mexico, and I, I'm real curious to get your opinion on this. Um, we've seen deer, let's say, that we have passed on and, and elected to not have our hunters shoot, you know, certain deer that say might be, you know, 102, 103, 104, 105-inch type deer that, you know, we're like, man, let's just let that deer grow up and see what he'll be next year. And it's funny how when we do that, a lot of times we come back and find the same buck the next year, and he's the same size. And we've kind of come to the conclusion that there are some deer, and I would even say most deer, uh, you know, that you see, a lot of them are never going to be bigger than what you see. They may get a little heavier or what have you. Um, and I don't know as much if it's a Mexico thing or if it's an Arizona thing, but I mean, I think there's some deer that will never even reach a hundred inches. Um, they'll always be, you know, that 95 inch buck and the same length points and the same look and frame once they reach maturity. Um, and, and we find that there's, you know, handfuls of bucks that seem to go from, you know, you know, 75 inch buck to a 90 inch buck to a 105 inch buck to you know 115 inch buck and you know they continue and just blow up um, but have you seen deer and it, what have you uh, discovered as far as deer uh, either blowing up or remaining the same for two or three years in a row well I, I think that uh, you're, you're spot on with, with what you see there in Mexico I think it's the same with public land Arizona um, realistically you know, a deer, a lot of deer are never going to be giants regardless of how much age they get. Uh, we killed a deer in an October hunt one year that uh, we had a side rack off of him. He was in line four on that side, and we were hoping he was on both sides. Um, when we killed him the next year, he was less than a half inch difference in size than he was the year before, and he was a mature buck. Um, you know, deer like that are, are just never... You know, at a hunt, he was 100 or 101, um, never going to be any better. And uh, and a solid deer, that deer no one should ever pass up. But uh, I think a lot, you can tell a lot about these deer just from the early years. Um, 
you know, what they're doing if they if they start out with you know with, with some pretty amazing looking genetics they they have that potential maybe um, but are they going to stonewall well shoot nobody really knows uh, some deer just all of a sudden decide to be a freak you know who know uh, who knows what causes that is it something in their environment um, you know is, is it something that uh, uh, you know that happened to them you know I, there, there's just no way to know that is it a genetic thing. But, uh, you know, there are certainly some deer that in public land you wish would grow. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, the truth of it is, is because we're hunting in a public land environment, you have to shoot a buck when you see it. You can't wait for it to get older. Um, a lion's going to get it or something. You know, I, I had a buck that uh, I missed some years ago in October hunt that um, I just snapped a shot at him, was a little too quick, and a lion hunter picked him up as uh, as he trailed a lion over the kill uh, in January the, the, that following year. So, uh, you know, you, you just can't take a risk uh, and, and, and let him go. Yeah, I mean, it's always, I mean, as you know, in trying to look over and try and pick a great buck for your client to shoot or a buck for yourself to shoot, I mean, you know, the last time you see a deer, in my mind, a coos deer, the last time, or, you know, when you, when you leave driving away from that deer, it's always in the back of my mind, will I ever see that deer again? And the answer is sometimes you will and sometimes you won't. And like you said, I mean, you couldn't have said any better with, with the amount of lions that we have, uh, in Arizona, in this country, um, their success rate of living isn't great. I mean, they it's hard for those bucks to reach that age, you know, six, seven, eight years old. It, it's virtually impossible. I mean, and I think that's why you don't see a lot of those bucks being shot. You see a lot of, you know, a year and a half, two and a half, three and a half year old deer killed. But, you know, you get up in that six, seven, eight range, that that's an old deer. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, there's, the predation is high, and, and of course, uh, then they have to deal with three or four uh, uh, coos deer hunts every year. That that doesn't help either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about, and we're kind of bouncing back and forth, but the different style of tactic in hunting between, you know, your early season um, let's say even from the early, you know, August uh, archery deer season to, you know, watching them all summer and watching them in October and November as opposed to um, watching them and scouting for them in December, late December and even into January. Uh, what are some of the things that you noticed the most about those different time periods? The, the biggest issue with the, uh, the October hunts, I think, is that you've watched these bucks um, whether it be a junior deer hunter or the October hunt, you watched a lot of them if you've scouted know their antlers and, and you know they're somewhere there, they're within their home range. Uh, and uh, so you've got to find ways to, to be creative and dig them up because they're hiding and they have really no intention of giving themselves up. They've got to make a mistake or you're not going to find them. Uh, um what we love about the December hunts is that uh, they're, uh, the girls are going to make them 
make that mistake for you. They're going to be out there trying to, to see if there's any hot does and, and uh, let those does chasing them over the hillsides, whatever it, you know the conditions might be. And uh, so you've just got to be out there and you've got to hope to catch them making those mistakes, whether it's October or December. And they just make a lot more mistakes as the year gets later. You know, I totally agree with you. I think one of the things, too, um, you know, a lot of guys like yourself, um actually love to hunt those bucks in October uh, and like that first rifle season and the fact that you can really scout, you know, July, August, September uh, and really pattern those bucks. And it, it seems as though they've got a very tight home range, um, you know, during those months and they, they don't move a whole lot as far as distance. Um, and it seems as though when you get into the December hunt, one of the things I like about the December hunt, for one, is it's three weeks long. Uh, for two, from a human standpoint, it's it's usually more, uh, you know, it's colder, it, it's better hiking weather. It, it's, you know, granted, you've had some rough, you know, last couple weeks of, of snow and, you know, that type of thing. But, you know, October can be, you know, very hot from from just a comfort standpoint of, of human beings, um, you know, hot h- hiking and what have you, and, you, you know, you need to pack more water, whereas December, um, you know, it's cooler and, and easier conditions, you know, quote, unquote. Um, my, I think the biggest challenge in hunting these, you know, later December hunts and into the rut is, it's a double-edged sword because yes, the deer are out and moving around more, but then you throw in uh, bucks chasing does that might be visible um, to your eye, but when you actually go to try and get close to them, set up, put the backpack down, build your rest, and try and shoot at these deer, um, sometimes when you have them pegged in October where they're maybe moving 50 yards in one direction or another, Sometimes I think killing them in October is easier than when they're running around chasing the does after Christmas. What do you think? I think that's absolutely spot on. The, uh, there's nothing better than finding that big coos deer buck in an early hunt and, and knowing he's going to be right there, um, somewhere right there. And, and then when you relocate him, you can actually, you know, get on him. These deer that are running around right now, um, or cruising, they can cover so much ground in the time it takes for you to close on them um, that you can lose them completely. Uh, I think that's kind of given way to uh, some of the, the long-range hunting that's, that's going on with, with uh, uh, you know, with, specifically with coos deer hunting now and guys building some really nice uh, guns that will reach out there is that you increase your odds significantly if you can shoot that deer from where you see him versus having to get to two or 300 yards with an over older style conventional rifle. The, yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, the, the Most guys that you see that have harvested, you know, big coos deer successfully over and over are usually guys that have honed their skills and can shoot very, very well. Um, you know, out to five, six hundred yards, 
um, and, and in some cases even further, um, where you know if you have to leave your rock, drop down a ravine, cross two canyons to get you know 250 yards, your chances of success are probably going to be a lot less because one, uh, the deer uh, has a chance to move, the deer has a chance to bed down, the deer has a chance to do something to get out of your sight. Um, so certainly for those people out there listening, uh, you know, getting a really good rifle with a really good scope is as is, is good as they can afford. And then being uh, very comfortable being able to shoot long distances and practicing those distances, I think just ups your chances uh, for sure of, of uh, being able to harvest a deer. Gino, I want to transition just a little bit into, I know you've had some uh, really good success uh, archery deer hunting in January. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the Arizona Game and Fish Department um, made some changes a couple years ago, and you can refresh my memory when that was. But in my mind, um, it, honestly, it seems uh, ridiculous to me uh, that they took the baiting where people could put out, uh, you know, corn, could put out other things to attract deer uh, and, you know, sit in a stand or sit in a blind and successfully hunt deer. I feel like archers uh, have a hard enough time uh, killing and, and being successful. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't exactly, I didn't really like the change, to be honest with you. And this comes from someone that really doesn't spend a lot of time archery deer hunting. Uh, I'm usually in Mexico and have other things going on, but it just seems as though they could have done a lot of things. And I, I and personally, I think they've kind of took away um, a lot of people's uh, love of hunting in January and, and um, you know, kids opportunity and what have you. Uh, what are your thoughts on the subject? Well, you know, I, I think that, uh, it was a direct attack on opportunity in the state of Arizona. Uh, they fed us kind of a, an unsubstantiated line of crap, if you will, about chronic wasting disease. And, and you know, we just don't have the deer densities for that. Um, the, uh, the best part about the baiting the way it was previously was the recruitment. Um, in today's world of kids, we're... we're literally fighting against technology where these kids would much rather sit indoors and uh, play their Game Boys or with their iPads or whatever they do now. Um, and so if you ask them to sit in the ground blind and wait for a Tuesday to walk by and they don't see one for a day or two days in a row, they're pretty much done. They've had enough. Um, with uh, with the way the baiting uh, played into the game was that you know you were you were catering to the density of the uh, the densities of the deer. The does were constantly, you know, at least coming by maybe once a day or something if if you got in front of them. That's the the, the one misconception. You could you can dump a pile of bait anywhere and, and not see a single deer. You still have to be in their path. Um, but these kids would see these deer and, and they would get excited and, and it didn't matter if they actually harvested a deer or not, at least they saw deer. And I think that was 
Um, you know, and then the older hunters, as, as we get older, older, I should say, I, I feel like I'm getting old, but I'm not um, yet. Uh, <laughs> we get around the hills as, as good as we as we could. Um, it, it's great to have that opportunity to be able to sit in a chair, whether it be in a tree or, or in a ground blind, and, and have deer come by you. Um, you know, our deer densities are, are fairly low here, so if you just set up a ground blind or a tree stand and uh, expect a deer to come by, gosh, you could sit there for a long time before one does. Um, you know, if if, uh, if you if you look at the, the ground just in the mud or, or whatever, you know, in the days this time of year, you'll see that there's places where a deer walks by once a week. Um, that could be pretty disheartening for a new hunter or, or someone who's not willing to punish themselves like, like some of us are sit there for days and days in the cold yeah i mean you know on one hand you hear all sorts of talk about we want to increase hunter opportunity and we're going to put this season in and put this rifle season in and this rifle season and this you know you hear it over and over and over we're going to increase tags on this hunt and this hunt and this hunt and here you've got a, a very small group of people in my mind in in relation to the big group of rifle hunters that are enjoying archery deer hunting and it's it's not as though in my mind and you can weigh in on this it's not as though you're in texas nothing against our texas friends but um and you've got a timed feeder and boom the feeder goes off they show up 10 minutes before the feeder's going to go off they stand under it and you know wait for it to go off it, the densities of deer like you said that we're dealing with are, are way different than i think what the perception is um can you weigh in on you know you throw a bag of corn out and it you know the the perceived notion was that the deer just come right to it they, they have no chance and you know the hunters just sit there and pick them off one by one i don't think that that's the situation at all like you said, they may come by once a day, maybe even every couple of days. Exactly, and, and the I, I think the real push here, Jay, was um, what was more from from a commerce standpoint um, than it was about hunters. I, I really think that uh, the game and fish was very concerned that uh, individuals could have an impact on deer. Uh, or, or on hunter's success, whether it be a guide or whether it be a family of people who was getting the whole family involved and everybody was was able to kill a deer. And we had we held a, a deer camp at our house here every year where, where we were harvesting seven, eight deer a year. They really hated that. Um, but, but I don't understand why they would hate that when they, you know, up a, a tags in a unit by 400 or, or 500 and rifle hunters when, you know, I, I just don't get that mindset. Let's create more opportunity for rifle hunters, but let's take it away from the archers. I don't get that. Well, this is feedback that we got directly from some of the wildlife managers who were behind the push for the rule change. They did not like the success. There was a few guys in southern Arizona having success. Uh, there was... Uh, a slew of people um, in, in the, the central part of Arizona, whether they be private individuals or or uh, 
guides as well that were that were having success. Uh, they did not like that, and and they they made it known that they didn't like it, and they made it known that they were gonna take it away. Um, when we put forth the fight that that we were going to argue with them on the opportunity angle, it kind of quit for a while. And then when they came back, they came back with chronic wasting disease and no data to support it being even an issue here in the state of Arizona. It was, and, and truthfully, I don't think that, they, that they're really enforcing it out there. I, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I think they just did it to put another rule on the books to keep honest people honest, and they're not really concerned about whether it's going on out there or not now. That's an interesting point. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I, I hope they revisit that and maybe make a change um, back to how it was and and they let those a, art. They had a really unique opportunity, I think, where they could have used archery deer hunters as a management tool. So few of the deer harvested by by archery hunters are are uh, animals that, that rifle hunters would be hunting anyways. Um, unless they're spot and stock deer, which since the uh, since they really put this bill in place, there have been an exponentially higher amount of uh, spot and stock harvest in Arizona. But I think that the thing that, that they could have done and should have done is that they they should have said, well, you know, we're seeing too many deer based on our mandatory reporting, which they had in place at that time. We're seeing too many deer being harvested in certain areas. So let's go ahead and uh, institute something similar to what we have with our our bear in Arizona where where we have a quota. Once a certain quota has been met in in that particular unit, well, we're going to shut that unit down the following Wednesday. And and they have something solid management-wise to bank on that they're not going to exceed that. Uh, they, They didn't even consider that as an option. It was something that, that was brought to their attention that, that just didn't seem to make sense to them. They had all the pieces of the puzzle in place. Uh, they really just wanted to to shut people down and, and to, to limit the opportunity for bow hunters in Arizona. Yeah, I find that um I find that to be unfortunate. I hope they revisit that um for sure. And you know, I want to ask you, moving forward, when your client comes back in, you're going to get to hunt some after Christmas. Um, what what are you going to focus on as far as, uh, are you targeting a specific buck? Um, or are you just covering country knowing that if, if uh, over the last five, six days of that season, uh, a buck of, of which you would like to shoot will present itself? I... Uh, I- I can honestly tell you we are deer hunting. Uh, we are looking at all the deer, uh, and which is my absolute favorite way to, to December Q's deer hunt. Um, for me, it's almost it almost gets in my way to be looking for one deer um, because the opportunities are endless. Uh, you just never know what is going to come out of the shadows somewhere this time of year. It's like Christmas Day every day. Um, literally one pan of the glass away from year of your dreams and it doesn't really matter where you are um, as long as there's does on that hill in front of you you could see the next big giant for sure well I hope you find that um, I, I see one uh, question here in my notes that I'm kind of bouncing all over the place but um, 
as, as the season, as January 1st hits and then a bunch of these units open up for archery deer uh, over the counter, uh, in your mind, uh, I get a lot of emails, guys asking about how, how to archery deer hunt. Um, walk me through um, your thought process and, and let's talk about areas where deer are visible uh, maybe not as much in the thick country. Let's just talk about, you know, glassable, you know, maybe a little bit higher deer density uh, country. When January 1st rolls around, walk me through like a typical morning of strategy as what you will try and do as an archery deer hunter. I think for, for the, the spot and stock enthusiast, and it's become a lot more popular these last few years. One, you got to be willing to walk your legs off. Um, but you, you've got to be able to, to hunt country that, that you can get around in. So the brush country's fairly well out uh, as far as that goes. Uh, but if, if you can find a place that has a, a decent amount of deer, um, and, and you've witnessed those deer covering a specific area, a specific travel pattern, uh, you can you can spot and stalk them or you can choose to try and sit that location. I think that a lot of it ha- really comes down to, to understanding the deer in a particular area you're hunting. For, for some, some people are just quick learners and, and very... Um, it's very easy for them to, to get into the swing of things and get out there and hunt deer. For others, it's more of a challenge. So I always tell folks, get out there and scout with a tag in your pocket, but, but spend more time learning and less time hunting. Um, if the opportunity presents itself, by you've got your bow and a tag in your pocket. But I absolutely love to walk around the woods during January and just learn about deer, uh, whether I even get a chance to draw my bow or not. I think that's great advice. I think coos deer specifically are an animal that the more you can observe their behavior, the better chances you have of establishing a pattern and making a predictable game plan to go try and put a stock on that deer. It makes me think of an article a long time ago, uh, Eddie Claypool, um, who I believe writes for Bowhunter, um, and as actually a friend, um, he wrote, he said, you know, there's oftentimes I will sit and watch a deer for four, five, six days before I even go after the deer, trying to learn and just what you said, you know, trying to figure out what that deer is doing and which ridge that he's running, you know, which, where he likes to bed so that you can, you know, he, he, he watched and had a specific deer in the article. I think he watched him for seven days before he even uh, went after the deer. Um, and, you know, coos deer, one of the things I like about coos deer hunting is um, you can use your optics and you can get up on high points and you can sit and just enjoy watching them move around. Uh, certainly in January, they are a lot more visible um, and even people that are not experienced cooster hunters can actually go out and enjoy seeing those deer. Um, so I, I think that's something that people can take to heart and, you know, like you said, observe more and learn more about what they're doing uh, before they go and, 
and make a stock on those deer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's there's a, a, a point where the world has turned to that instant gratification. Uh, we want to go out and we want to be successful. Um, but if we take a step back and, and really enjoy why we're out there, um, you know, the, the whole pressure of filling the tag becomes a little less uh, strenuous. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I want to ask you here as we close up this episode, I want to talk to you a little bit about gear and what are what are some pieces of gear uh, that you use that you feel are, you know, 100% uh, uh, paramount in, in your success? Well, I think over the years, um, I've, I've kind of changed a lot. Uh, I, I remember back my very first uh, pair of binoculars was a pair of 1042 SLCs. Uh, and I uh, I loved those things. and, and But I, I realized quite quickly on that I couldn't see these deer. Um without a tripod. It was kind of, the, the whole tripod thing was, uh, I always thought of it as for spotting skills. And, uh, but as as things came about, I realized I could see a lot more. Um, and of course, went on to the 1556s, uh, being able to see even more. I've since traded those in on a uh, pair of 1050s, and I've settled on that. Uh, uh, Swarovski 1050s? Yeah, they're absolutely my favorite glass. Um, I can carry them around my neck. They're not as big as 15s. Um, but I'm all about field of view. Uh, I find that I find more deer out of my peripheral than I ever do looking directly at something. Um, so the bigger field of view that I can see, uh, it makes me more patient for one because I don't feel like I have to keep moving all the time. And I can just look at that screen and, and, and try to find something to, that moves or something that gives itself away. Um, the last few years, I've, I've uh, also incorporated the you know the colors into uh, into the game. They've certainly changed uh, how I hunt um, or how I scout. Mostly, not, not necessarily as much how I hunt because I hate packing when I'm hunting. But uh, I absolutely love being able to to look and pick brush apart with, with, with big glasses, with, with a field of view like that. Um, I think that uh, uh, for me personally, it's not the magnification as much as, as large field of view. So from an optics standpoint, I, I tell everybody that. I, I see, you know, stay away from the stuff that, that shrinks that view down. Um, I get frustrated whenever I switch over to my spot and scope to try to... Uh, field judge an animal because the field is so much smaller uh, and, and I think that just resonates with me time and time again every time I pull that spotting scope out. Yeah, I'm, I I totally see where you're coming from. Um, I always, you know, I, I really like the 15 by 56, the new Swarovskis. Um, I have the 12s too and Gino, I, I do have to agree with you. The one thing I like about the 12s uh, on, on days there are some days that I like the 12s better in the fact that I, I think you bring up a great point about being able to see edge to edge as far as, you know, field of view and picking stuff up. The wider field that you have, if you still have good a good clarity and, and you know, good vision on a hill, 
it, it makes sense that the wider field of view you're going to pick up, especially if deer are moving or up feeding, uh, you're going to definitely have a chance to pick up more deer. Um, I, I, I agree with you on that. And then as on the 32 power koas as well, um, you know, in, in some regards, they're, they're a game changer for a coos deer hunter in my mind because you can start becoming effective, you know, a couple miles away and people don't really realize that that's even a possibility, but it's the truth. And, um, you know, if you have the ability to get up high with those binoculars and sit for a long period of time, I mean, you're just, you're going to see more game further away now that creates its own problems but when you're scouting like you said uh just finding the deer is the first part of the equation then once you find a particular deer then you can move closer and continue watching that deer maybe from a from a closer uh vantage but um i i tend to agree with you on the koas i mean they they you can look long distance um, and see very, very well, uh, much like the same, you know, looking through 10s or 12s or 15s, you know, at, say, out to, you know, almost a mile. Uh, with the 32s, you can look, you know, two miles. And um, so I, I, I agree with you on that. I want to ask you a question about field of view. And I've asked people on the podcast before, when you're sitting down and glassing, uh, when you're panning, Gino, uh, looking at a coos deer hillside, do you typically, let's, let's say you're looking at a, at a hill, uh, do you start at the top? Do you start at the bottom? Do you start at the left or the right? Do you pan up and down? Do you pan side to side? Kind of walk me through. And, and I think uh, people that are just starting to learn how to glass can listen to guys like yourself and, and, how your thought process of how you pan across a hill, how you do that? Well, you know, I I, I frustrate myself sometimes because I have a tendency to jump around um, because I'm eager. Oh, I want to see what's right there. Oh, I want to see what's right here. But I have to kind of back up and force myself. Um, I'm always a big believer that I want to catch the spots first where, where I might lose an animal. So if I think... If I think that's on the skyline, then I'm going to hit that skyline first um, because right at daylight or, you know, whatever, it might be going over the other side. Um, I try to make it a point to at least once, if not twice, cover every inch of that hill from left to right um, or right to left. It doesn't matter to me either way. But... Um, and, and just work my way down, covering every inch of it, hoping that I'm going to dig something up. In a so are you, are you in essence, are you sweeping? Are you panning? But are you, I, I'm a left to right, right to left. I'm a, I'm a horizontal panner and sweep either down or up. Do you, do you start at the top and pan down and then go back up? Or are you left, go all the way to the right, and then right, go all the way to the left? How do you do it? I have to go left to right or right to left. Um, and the reason is because is I've found that I, I, I like to use the bridge of my nose to push my binoculars, and I can do that left to right. Um, so I, I set the tension. I, I, I changed to, to the, the pan head style of, of 
whether it's with my koas and, and my, my big head or my smaller head with my pins, um, I, I I set that, that pan, the side-to-side motion, I set it quite loose so I can stick my hands in my pockets and be patient. And then I'm just using, I get sores on the sides of my nose from, <laughs> from pushing my binoculars around, but um, that allows me to be more patient. I find that if I have my hands anywhere near my face, I get impatient and I move too fast. Uh, so I do this side to side, and then when I reach the end of as far as I can look left or right, then I use my hand to move down to the next frame and then go left or right again. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly exactly the way I do it. Whether I, I tend to start at the top, uh, I tend to start on the skyline. I, I, I personally tend to, when I first sit down, I'm going to quick pan and quick scan places that, you know, saddles, open areas, just places that are obvious. And then once I've cleared the obvious, and sometimes that takes, you know, five minutes, sometimes that takes 20 minutes, um, then I'm going to go, okay, let's start over here. And then I pan and I basically am sweeping or or covering the country, trying to eliminate until I find something. Um, one thing that I find, Gino, uh, is that if I'm sitting there glassing and you know how you, you're always talking to yourself, uh, at least I am, and you're not seeing deer, coos deer, I always have to tell myself, start over and slow down. And it seems like I always laugh at myself because, you know, I'm all frenzied up to see, you know, spot what I can, spot what I can, and I'm not seeing anything. And I start over and I slow down. And it almost seems within minutes of slowing down, I spotted, you know, an ear flick or something that because I was going too fast, um, those coos deer, you know, they can be standing in the wide open and standing still uh, with their head down, say, feeding. And, you, you know, you know right where they're at, but you pan back over to try and find them and you can't see them. And then all of a sudden they move their front leg and they were standing in your field of view the whole time. Uh, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, that first uh, scanning of the hillside is generally quick. You're, you're looking for, for the, the, the obvious, the deer that are up moving, the deer that are chasing, the something that's going to catch your eye. But each time you go over that hillside, I think you get a little slower and a little slower. And you go from looking for the obvious to looking for the, the completely inconspicuous uh, detail, something that sticks out to you, uh, whether it be uh, a twitch. I, I know I always hate it when uh, I come across a Tweety bird or a, a bunch of Tweety birds on a hillside. <laughs> All it takes is one little flutter of a wing to make your heart stop because you think you just saw cruise your ear nose. Uh, so I think yeah. that's critical. We actually, as you were talking, it reminded me of a deer we saw yesterday. She was laying, you know, out of the wind, and and I'd seen her a bunch of times. Every time I'd look there, she was there, and and then all of a sudden I looked back and I'm like, where'd she go? And she laid her head flat down on the ground, and she looked like a rock laying there. If if I hadn't have seen her when her head was up, I would have scanned right over her, um, simply because she she changed her head position. Yeah, they're amazing animals for sure. 
Uh, Gino, it's been awesome having you on here on this episode. Uh, I wanted to ask you in conclusion here, um, I know you're in the construction business and I see, I, I, I see you do all sorts of jobs. Uh, tell me about, uh, other than guiding, tell me about what you do uh, for work. Here in Central Arizona, based out of Strawberry, we uh, we started a, a residential uh, home building and remodeling company in '97. Um, that's I've been in construction my whole life. Uh, followed in my dad's footsteps, been going in a hammer around, following him since I was like five. So I've I've uh, been blessed to, to to be in the field and, and uh, build a lot of really neat custom homes up here in the rim country. Uh, um, did a lot of this old house projects, uh, turned something that was run down into something just amazing. Uh, so that's been uh, most of my my career. Um, I've had the opportunity to, to also branch out. Uh, we, we started a little asphalt maintenance company and um, also a, a civil construction company. We've been doing some uh, um, infrastructure type work all over the state. That's been kind of fun as well. But my roots are definitely in the residential world here in, in central Arizona. Um, that's uh, that's what we've what we've done all these years. Awesome. Yeah, I, I follow you on Facebook, and I see you post all pictures and such of different projects. And I mean, it seems like from you know doing stuff, you're doing something with some dams, and you were doing something at some marinas, and you know. Uh, remodeling and and you know home construction it seems like you you do all sorts of work so i'm sure that uh keeps your mind uh uh occupied and and um that's cool how can people how can listeners uh if they want to get a hold of you either for a guided uh uh coos hunt or elk hunt or what have you and or uh if they have any remodeling or construction needs, uh, what is the best way for people to find you? Well, you can always find my construction company on the web, uh, and Sun Construction at www.andsunconstruction. Uh, and that's, that's A-N-D, and yeah. Sun? Yeah, okay. A-N-D-S-O-N. Okay. Um, that's, that's our, uh, uh, our residential company, and and for any other construction type stuff, I can I can be found that way. As, as far as my hunting goes, uh, I work with A3 Trophy Hunts. Uh, they're super easy to get a hold of Matt or Chad or, or Jay. And um, uh, we hunt all over the state. So it really becomes a matter of, of whether uh, someone is hunting in my particular part of the state or, or one of our other guys that are more qualified in that region of the state. Awesome. Well, buddy, I wish you the best of success uh, on your upcoming uh, hunt after Christmas here and hope to see pictures of a big giant coos buck. And um, uh, just uh, thank you for being on and spending time with us. And do you have any closing thoughts or any questions of me? Uh, no, I just uh, want to wish you a Merry Christmas and uh, thanks for having me on. All right, buddy. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks. And uh, uh, have a Merry Christmas yourself, okay? All right. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening to the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card when signing up for the GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster 
hunt more, go to gohunt.com forward slash insider and join today.